grew up on a farm on a gravel road in rural Minnesota. In the spring, usually around Easter, the frozen ground would finally thaw and the frost would heave out of it. A big heavy milk truck would rumble down our gravel road, pull into our farm and pick up the milk. That heavy milk truck would leave 12-inch tire ruts in the gravel road. Thankfully, the county sent a large grater right behind the milk truck to scrape it flat. And that was beautiful. A light, chocolate-looking, freshly grated gravel road. For a few days, it was smooth, a redneck autobahn. But it wasn't long before this happened. That freshly grated gravel in the middle of the road would start to pack down where the tires were forming ruts. By June, those ruts had gotten deeper. If you'd look down our gravel road in June, it would look like this. On the left side, a high shoulder, then a rut. In the middle, a hump. To the right of the hump, another tire rut, and then a high shoulder. Can you picture that? Two high shoulders on either side, a high hump in the middle, and two tire ruts. For the rest of the summer, you could drive down that gravel road safely if you kept one tire on the hump and one tire on the right shoulder. And you could continue to drive that way if you paid attention. Problem is, farmers never pay attention to the road. They're looking at the crops. And when you took your eyes off the road and looked at the crops, you inevitably were sucked down into the ruts. The moment that happened, you'd know. The center hump would scrape the bottom of your car and you might need a new oil pan. After the Genesis chapter 6 through 8 flood, Noah and his family came out of the ark to, how shall I say this, a freshly graded gravel road, a start over new beginning. The question is, would it stay that way? Or would their old ruts, tendencies to sin, trespass, twist God's plan, redevelop? I think God expected the ruts to return. Right at the beginning of chapter 9, he changes the rules a bit. He lowers the bar. First, he allows Noah's family to start eating animals, possibly to give his beloved creatures a chance. He then puts the fear of man in animals. Apparently, it was Dr. Doolittle before that, which explains, perhaps, how animals of every kind just walked their way onto Noah's ark. He tells Noah's family, before you fire up the grill, I won't compromise on one thing. You may not eat these animals with the blood still in them. Drain the blood. Stay away from the blood. For the rest of the Old Testament, we're going to find God continuing to say, there's something special about blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but it's likely one of God's clues about the stomper. God repeats his instruction to Noah's family that he gave to the first family, Adam and Eve, reproduce and spread out. They settled in, apparently, to a life of farming. The text tells us Noah planted a vineyard. From what follows, you wonder if it wasn't on a gravel road somewhere. It tells us Noah planted a vineyard, and let's say he liquidated too much of the inventory. It says he got drunk and passed out in his tent. I have a conversation with my students about God's kids and alcohol. I tell them when they're old enough legally to drink, they've got some decisions to make. I tell them, when you're old enough to consider alcohol, please consider the ruts in your road or the ruts of those around you that you love. While I can't tell them the place alcohol will have in their lives as an adult, I can tell them this. 
being intoxicated is always wrong. It never turns out well, as evidenced by news clips of their favorite celebrities or by examples throughout scripture. The text tells us Noah's laying in his tent in his birthday suit, passed out drunk. I haven't mentioned Noah's three boys who survived the flood, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They're full-grown adults with wives. Genesis chapter 9 says, One of Noah's boys enters the tent and sees his dad laying there. He goes and reports what he's seen to his two brothers. We're told his two brothers grab a cloak, put it over their shoulders, walk backwards into the tent, and lay the blanket on their dad. The text tells us what Noah did when he woke up and sobered up. It says, when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. Hold on. Hold on. Who's Canaan? Canaan is his grandson, the son of Ham. He continues, he will be the lowest of slaves among his brothers. And then he blesses Shem and Japheth. Is Noah just hungover and grumpy? Why on earth would he curse his grandson for his son Ham walking into the tent and then going to tell his brothers? There's something the text hasn't told us. My students usually don't have an answer for this, so I suggest two possibilities. The first is disrespect. When Ham saw his father, he went to get his brothers to say, Hey, come look at the old man passed out in the tent. What a loser. Disrespect and dishonor of authority. That sounds like a pre-flood rut emerging in the freshly graded road. But there's another possibility. Ham could have, how shall I say this, enjoyed seeing his dad lying there and thought he'd share it with his brothers. Yep, I know, I'm teaching 7th graders. I didn't come up with that possibility. Bible scholars have. Here's how. Ham's son Canaan moved to the Mediterranean area and settled in, and became the people group, the Canaanites. We'll study them a lot in Genesis 12 through 35. Archaeologists have dug down through levels of Canaanite culture. What they've discovered in the artifacts is Canaanites had a one-track mind. The artifacts could only be described as pornographic. So it's not that big a stretch to believe that Noah woke up, understood the situation, knew what Ham had done, and realized that little Canaan wouldn't fall far from that tree. The other thing to note in Noah's words is the blessing on Shem. Noah, the survivor of the flood, the descendant of Seth, is now passing the line of the stomper onto Shem. The stomper will be a Shemite, or in modern pronunciation, a Semite, out of the three brothers who survived the flood and who'll go their separate ways, Shem's line will carry the stomper. The rest of Genesis 9 and 10 tell us where those three lines will settle. Japheth will head north. Ham will head south. Seth will stay put. But they wouldn't move right away. They'll all stay put. They hunker down. Which brings us to Genesis chapter 11. Babel. God allows us to eavesdrop on a Shem-Ham-Japheth descendant conversation. Come. Let us build a city and a high tower reaching to the heavens. We will be like the Most High God. Listen to that. God said, Be fruitful, multiply, spread out, know your place. The kids respond, No, we'll stay put. We'll become strong. We'll be like you. There they are, ruts in the road. 
viewing the project, the text tells us God did a little building safety inspection on their construction project. God's conclusion, these disobedient, twisted people can accomplish almost anything. I asked my students, do you really think God was worried that he now had a competitor? Really? The one who spoke creation into existence with a word? The one who covered the earth with the waters of judgment? No, God's not biting his nails. God is concerned, all right, for their well-being. For their sake, he can no longer leave them united, united in their twisted ways. It states he confounded their languages. I asked my students what anthropologists have asked themselves. How is it if we all came from one set of human parents, we have such radically different languages? from guttural German to sing-song Mandarin Chinese. The Bible's answer to that is Babel. God did it at one place, Babel in the plains of Shinar, and he did it in a moment. No longer able to communicate, the descendants of Japheth move north, the descendants of Ham move east, and Shem stays put. Eight generations later, not far from Babel, in a little town called Ur, we're introduced to a descendant of Shem, Abram, and his wife Sarai, a simple Bedouin. His life is about to dramatically change, so that today, when his name is named, the three major world religions hold him in high honor. How on earth did that happen? We'll begin to discover that in our next word picture.